It occurred to me uh, this week as we're heading into the last message in our series on following Jesus and the notifications that matter. I, I was wondering, you know, can you imagine if social media existed when Jesus came? That would be, uh, when Jesus was on earth 2,000 years ago, he created quite a following. I mean, the first day of ministry, he had a whole city gathered at the door of a house. And I wonder what would have happened if, you know, he went viral on the internet, which you know he would. But in God's timing, social media was a long way off, thankfully, for those who remember times before it and the relative peace that we had. But as we turn here to Mark chapter 1, for the last time at this point, uh, we're going to look at verses 35 through 45 of Mark chapter 1. And as, as we look at this passage, it, it raises another question of, you know, Jesus gathered a lot of followers, and He seemed to want to have a lot of followers, yet our passage at the same time makes it very clear that he was about something more than just having followers. He was more, something more than just the size of the crowds and the number of, of likes that he would have and the reposts on X, formerly known as Twitter, as it's now called, which is not just X, but it's X, formerly known as Twitter. Anyway. So as we look at this passage, uh, I want you to consider what Jesus is actually after when it seems like he wants followers, yet he wants something more. And consider what category you are in as just a follower, or are you a part of the crowd, or are you in that sweet spot of of what Jesus would desire. And that's what we're going to unpack today as we look at God's Word from Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. This is God's Word. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, why don't you go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he, Jesus, sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, 
But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. This is God's word. Lord, thank you for your word that it is trustworthy and true. Set us apart, sanctify us by your word that we might become more like you, Jesus, in every way possible. We pray in your precious name. Amen. So the context here, just a few verses before this passage, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus said to a group of guys out fishing, tending their nets along the Sea of Galilee, not far from where he is now in Capernaum, he said to those guys, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. And then he he starts drawing these massive crowds, as we just saw in the passage in verse 28 and in verse 33. And his response, though, isn't, if you were reading along with me, yes, you know, we're doing it. This is great. Let's keep building the crowds and, and the momentum. But instead, his response is more along the lines of, All right, let's move on. Let's go. Everybody's looking for you. Okay, good. Let's leave. Let's head out. Let's go to the next place. And in fact, that's not only his answer in verse 38. In verse 44, he essentially says to the healed leper, don't tell anyone what I've done for you. But go see the priest. What's going on? Jesus says he wants followers But when the crowds come, he moves on. When he heals someone extravagantly, he says, be quiet. I don't understand it on the surface, but when you dig deeper, it makes some sense. I I think about the crowds in terms of we've got plenty of space. We still have a lot of empty seats. Wouldn't it be great if the whole town came out and we had standing room only? Would we not want more attendance in a worship service? Would we not want more people to hear the message? That's that's kind of the point that Jesus is making by His actions here and by His words that He wants followers, but not just any followers. He doesn't want statistics. He doesn't want sandals in His space. He, He doesn't want people in the pews in and of themselves. He wants people to come along with Him, to join Him in the journey. Jesus wants followers who are more about joining His lifestyle than receiving His benefits. And that's the great temptation for just about everyone He encountered when He was here on earth. And it's still a temptation for us that we don't want to join in the way of Jesus. We don't want to be in the kingdom under His authority, but we do want the benefits. And the temptation is to just listen or to just fill our heads or to just look for help and hope in one little compartment of our lives, but leave a whole lot of it to our own will and our own devices. And Jesus says, that's really not the followers I want. 
I don't just want statistics. I don't just want a part of your life. I want you to be a part of my life. Jesus says, I want your whole life. Join with me in the kingdom, Jesus says. He doesn't say, follow me and I will meet all of your physical needs. And you'll be content as large numbers of people come along with you and we all have all of our needs met and it's just sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and wonderful things. It's not what he says. I think if you read through Mark's Gospel, but even just here in chapter 1, when he calls those guys and says, follow me, it's right at the same time as he's saying, here's the good news. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is at hand. He's calling, essentially, for us to repent, for you to repent from your ways, to believe His good news, and to join His kingdom way of life. And the thing is, doing that, you will be so changed that others will come to you, come to Him through you, through your words, through your deeds, that as you live out kingdom life, you will find it more significant more powerful, more challenging, and yet more fulfilling than having the benefits of Jesus in your life. In fact, it's the greatest benefit is to be aligned with His life and purpose. Not have some benefits and keep Him at a distance. Follow Jesus fully. And that's, that's what we want to look at here. And what does that mean? To follow Jesus fully. Now, first of all, it means that you love God. And this is the order. First of all, love God. That's marked by spending time with Him. Jesus models this. Look at verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. And Simon and his companions searched for him. Jesus is very intentional about how he spends his time and how he makes sure that he spends time with the Father knowing that the night before this, the whole city was at the door of the house where he was staying. And they all went home to go to sleep eventually. Who knows what time. Jesus knew they'd be back as soon as light came, right? Because they didn't have flashlights and phones with lights on them, right? They, they had no street lights and street lamps. They were going to wait till dawn, till it was light. And so Jesus intentionally said, I, I need to spend time with the Father. And the only way really to do that uninterrupted is to get out of the house with these folks, to get a, a bit of distance, to rise early in the morning. And the, and the sense of that word is, is very early, exceedingly early, while it's still dark. And he goes to a secluded place. That's the same word that we've already encountered in Mark chapter 1, but it's been translated as wilderness in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 12 and 13. And it doesn't literally mean in this situation that he's going out into the wilderness, that he's going all the way across the Jordan or whatever, right? 
It means that he's gone to an isolated place, a secluded place, uh, away from where there are people. The empty place to spend time with God. Jesus had to get away. He had to be intentional in order to make sure he spent time with God. If Jesus needed to do that, do you think you can make time for God without having some sort of plan? Without being intentional about it? Without considering what's going on in your life and figuring out how you can make that time happen? And this wasn't just a one-time thing for Jesus. It pops up several times in Mark's Gospel, but Luke is especially clear in Luke 5, verse 16. Luke says, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness, same word, and pray. The habit of Jesus was to get away from the people and the crowds and everything else and all the distractions to spend time with the Father. He put his relationship with God above everything else. Literally everything else. Because the needs of other people and all the things of this life are never going to stop. You know, so stop telling yourself, well, I'll get it together after this next thing. Because there's going to be a next thing after that next thing. And there's going to be a next thing after that next thing after the next thing. And there's going to be a next thing after the next thing after the next thing after the next thing. And it's never going to end. There's always going to be something that's going to try to steal your attention and divert you and rob you of experiencing the love of God and pursuing the love of God by spending time with God. So, in other words, it's entirely appropriate to get away sometimes. If Jesus had to do that, you must do it. If Jesus chose to do that, you can choose to do it. It's okay to get away from the crowd. It's not about uh, fleeing the struggles of life, though. It's about getting away to fill up, to energize, to feast on God's presence. You know... (laughs) I was talking with uh, someone just this week and they pointed out, you know, we, we don't just eat once a week, right? You don't just go, oh, it's Sunday morning, I'll have a big breakfast, I'll be full until next Sunday morning. Do you get the connection? <laughs> it's not enough. It's good, don't hear me saying it's not good, to come and spend time with God in a group and even go to Bible studies and things like that. And... You know, we need more food during the week as well. We need to spend time with God. You know, if we love Him, that's what we're going to do. We're going to seek Him. We're going to desire Him and be intentional about finding some time. And it might be even bigger seasons of life. You know, might consider maybe taking the vacation time. I have been blessed to have a couple sabbaticals in my ministry life now. And they're a wonderful blessing, not to to get away from the struggles, but to spend some time apart from all of the needs that never end. To have some dedicated time to focus on the Lord with no other agenda than to just pursue Him. 
to seek Him. You know, and if you're going to do that, you, you'll need to set aside the phone, right? You'll, you'll need to have a plan. You might need to train your children. You might need to train your parents. You might need to train your friends, your roommates, whatever it is. To prioritize, I'm going to spend time with God. It's important, and I want to do it. See, the thing is, it's only as you prioritize time with God that you're able to then live for God. Just the second part of this first point. That we love God by spending time with God, but also by committing to live for God. Look at verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, the, Simon and the others, and it's a crowd, his companions, right? We don't know if that's just other disciples or if it's like people in his household because they were staying in his house, it seems. But there's a, there's a group searching for Jesus, and the sense of that word for searching is, is to eagerly look for someone. In fact, it, it has a sense of hunting. You know, it has a sense of, of maybe even hostility. It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about pursuing enemies several times. So there's this sense of, you know, there's something going on that you... you it's probably more than appropriate to read a bit of a rebuke in what Peter is saying here. When he finally finds Jesus, after having looked all around and searched high and low for him, it's like, everyone is looking for you. There are needs to be met. There are people pestering me, Jesus. They keep coming to me, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? And I'm like, I don't know. And so now I'm all under pressure, Jesus. So I'm trying to find you and here you are. What are you doing? You're just in the middle of nowhere. You ever feel like that? Like people pestering you and now you got to go do something? It's hard to not have just the sense of hostility, frustration. Because Jesus was basically saying no to a lot of people. He says, no, I'm not going to meet your needs right now. Because He's mean-spirited, because he's selfish? No. But because he was prioritizing time with God, he was then able to live for God, to make a real hard decision in the moment. You know, there's all kinds of situations where that pops up for us, right? Where you're tempted to say, well, this person needs me, and that person needs me, and I can't... You know, even... You know, we sometimes call that having a Messiah complex, right? That's so ironically wrong. Because the Messiah doesn't even do that. Jesus does not literally meet every need of the people who come looking for Him. So free yourself from that demand. And maybe consider if it isn't something in your heart that you want to be needed that much. And you want to be the one who provides... Whatever it is. And to recognize that, that maybe God wants something else for you. That maybe God wants you to take some space and sort the priorities a bit. Because look what Jesus does here. He's not only basically saying no to all of those needs of all those people, but He says, and He doesn't even say like, not yet, I'll get to you later. He says like, no, no. Verse 38. 
Peter says everybody's looking for you. Jesus says the next thing what? Let's go somewhere else. Everyone's looking for you back there at the house, Jesus. And he's like, okay, let's go somewhere else. To the towns nearby. Not fleeing ministry, but saying, God is calling me to a different place. My, my job is not to stay in this place doing this very thing over and over again for these particular people. God has called me to the mission to preach, to share the good news with others also. That is what I came for, he says. And what does he do? Verse 39, he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. He goes everywhere with the mission God had entrusted to him. Jesus had a very firm sense of purpose stemming from his relationship to the Father and his commitment to live for him. So he spent time with God and live for God. That means you're going to have priorities. You're going you're to prioritize what God wants you to do over what everyone else is telling you you should do. And you will only do that in a healthy way if you're doing it in that order of spending time with God and then considering how God is calling you to live. You know, to use a modern phrase, you know, Jesus is setting some boundaries, which is always about how you are going to interact with others. It's not, you, you don't require anything of other people, really. When you set boundaries, you say, this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm not going to do. This is the time I'm available for this. This is the time I'm not available for this. And I'm not going to own your frustration or your disappointment. I'm going to entrust it to God. The, too often, we're pulled in so many directions, distracted by so many good things, that our power for the best thing is diluted. Now, it's hard, right? Okay, you know, I can set a boundary of time with God. You know, I think people could understand that. But like, man, how am I going to do that even? Think about the needs of your family. Think about the needs of your employer or your school or your parents. Think about the needs of your church. And consider how you can still love God, spend time with Him, live for Him, in the middle of those competing needs. And if you don't have time for God, if you can't prioritize that time for God, if you really feel like you can't, something has to change. Period. If you cannot make time for God, something has to change. Period. There is no universe, no person that God intends to live without time for him. So what does that mean? You know, if you don't have sufficient time with God, you're, you're going to have problems living for him. It's such a priority. You will compromise. You will find it hard to make wise choices. In fact, if you're not spending time with God, you probably know it. You probably feel it that you're not spending enough time and you're probably feeling guilty. You're probably hardening your heart with excuses if you're not feeling guilty and then you feel guilty about trying to make excuses and you know it's just reasons and excuses. And what you need 
if you're having trouble spending time with God, what you need is community. You need trustworthy, faithful people who love God to help you spend time with Him and live for Him. You don't need guilt trips. You need wisdom. It's a solvable problem. It might be outside of, of your ability. You might have blind spots that you're just not seeing. You might need additional help. You might need someone to watch the kids or someone to come alongside and, and do something with you for you. You need help. It's hard to set healthy boundaries, to prioritize God, to live for Him, but it is so necessary. And sometimes it's going to mean you've got to get up earlier. Sometimes it means you've got to get away further. You have to have hard conversations with your spouse or your kids. You know, something like, hey, mommy needs some time alone right now. No matter what age your kids are. If they're young and they don't understand that, just start as soon as they can explaining that. This is, the, this is the way we do life, kids. They might not like it in the moment, but what it, what's, the, what's the long-term vision of having a parent who says, hey, essentially over and over again, God is my priority. And if you then live for God because you've spent that time with Him, your kids are going to see what that looks like. And they're going to adopt it for themselves as, a, as their view of how life is. And they're going to accept it. And if you keep having kids, you, know, you get a healthy kind of momentum going there. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a wisdom thing. You know, talk to your parents, your spouse, roommates, whatever. You know, talk to your elders here. I'd love to help you figure out how to make time for God. And talk to wiser, mature Christians. Get help. Because listen, it's only as you spend time with God that you are able to maintain your focus and purpose on God to live for Him. And that's so important. Because this is step one. Love God. That's what a follower of Jesus does. And step two, secondarily, slightly lower priority, but it goes with it like a hinge, is to love others. And you're not going to love others well and appropriately and in healthy ways if you don't first love God. Look with me here. Love others. And that means you're going to have compassion for them. Verse 40. Loving others means compassion for them. Verse 40. A leper came to Jesus beseeching him. You know, it's an old word, weird word for begging him. Falling on his knees, pleading with him, saying... If you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper clearly has some faith in Jesus. He's heard about what Jesus has done and believes Jesus is able to heal him, to cleanse him, to make him whole again. But he's not sure if Jesus is willing to do that. And Jesus answers any concerns he has very quickly. Look at verse 41. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him 
and he was cleansed. The, the most amazing part of this that we're too distant from now to really appreciate is, is not the healing itself. It's the first part that Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. Touched is the main verb in this sentence. The emphasis and the action is that Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. You could imagine, if you, if, if you understood the circumstances and what it was like, there were probably audible gasps, people's faces cringing, just as the leper showed up, much less as Jesus then moves toward him, reaching out. It'd be like slow motion. Everyone's like... No! Peter's like, and Peter's by eyes are like this big. Jesus reaching out. You, you, number one, lepers should not be near regular human people. They're castaways. They should be far away. Don't they read their Bibles? Go far away. Stay away. Cover your mouth. Yell unclean so I don't have to go near you. What are you doing even nearby? Now, Jesus, what are you doing, man? You don't, don't, don't talk to him. Just go away. Flee. He's dirty. He's tainted. Jesus is reaching out. Stretching out. Oh. Touching him. Violating the thousands of years of ingrained ceremonial law. And there's only one way that can be okay. R.C. Sproul had a good picture of this in his commentary. An analogy. You ever been, you know, driving along and you know, there's maybe some construction. You ever experienced that? <laughs> if you've driven anywhere lately, you have. Um, but now say, you know, there's a, a flagger or something like that. Or maybe, maybe there's an accident. And, you know, it happens right at the intersection. And traffic is backed up in every direction. And there are police officers there on the scene, and they're helping the, the, the victims and the people in the crash. And the light's red. But the police officer is like, come through. Come through. What are you, you going to do? You know, no, no, the light's red. What is this cop going to do then? It's, he's telling you to break the law. No, he's the embodiment of the law. He is, in a sense, the law. You know, when Jesus comes, not only as the embodiment of the law, but the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, everything about the uncleanness of lepers was never ultimately about 
lepers and leprosy. Just like the dietary laws were not really about the diet and what's healthy and what's not for you. That the, they were all about, hey, I care about how my people live. And I'm going to give a thousand plus year lesson for all of the world to see that I care about how people live by giving them not arbitrary, but very rarely explained reasons to do strange things in the eyes of the world, like eat this and not that. To go without bacon. To go without bacon. You know, to wear whole cloth and not mixed blends. You know, to, to live in this place, to offer these sacrifices, to do this with an animal and that with the other animal, to burn this and not burn that, always, always intended to point towards something else. In the case of the ceremonies and rituals of the diets, and other practices like circumcision and the Passover, always pointing to you're set apart, you're different, and always pointing at the same time that I will still live among you, even though I am the holy God, even though you have sinned, even though you're unclean, I, the clean and holy one, can dwell among you if you will trust me if you will believe my promises that I will provide a way for you to be clean, that I will provide a way for your sins to be forgiven, that if you will believe not merely that this animal's blood covers you, that but one day I will send the Lamb of God to cover you with His blood. That's the hope. Always pointing toward that. And so Jesus comes in this particular point in time to live that out and to demonstrate what it means to, to love others, to have a compassion for people that you think are strange or different or unclean, what it means to reach out to them. Jesus is moved from the inside out, that it flows from within him. And here's the thing that's so important. If you don't love God, if you don't spend time with God, if you don't commit to living for God, you're never going to love others. You're not going to have a compassion for them. Because 1 John puts it very clearly in chapter 4. A couple of verses I want to just bring to your mind. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love by this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him in this is love not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins to take away God's wrath to to satisfy God's justice for our sins beloved if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, which is not a new commandment, but he adds on to that what? As I have loved you. With a compassion that rises above any prejudice, any discomfort you might have, that steps out, that reaches out when it's wanting to pull back that goes near when it wants to run away. 
not foolishly and not into unnecessary danger. That's hardly the times that we encounter, very rarely. Way more often, we just pull back. Way more often, we just eh, don't care. And the love of God moves us, compels us, gives compassion within us. First John continues in chapter 4, verse 19, to say we love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you love God, spend time with Him, live for Him, your compassion for other people will grow. If it's not, consider maybe where the breakdown is. As we, we tend to dehumanize people who are different than us, people with, uh, who are just sick, like the leper, right? Dehumanize, less than human, treat them, less than human people, people who are aging, people who are challenged with mental health issues. We, we, we keep at a distance, right? And not necessarily physically, but that happens. But emotionally as well, right? We tend toward fear, sometimes disgust. We tend toward those emotional responses that pull back, that move us away from those who are different. You know, it, it, those emotions that lead us to, to, to change our facial expressions, to, you know, things that come out, disgust or judgment, all those kind of things. And it's, it's a beautiful thing that here at Crossroads, we are very tolerant of our differences. We're not perfect by any means, but we are very accommodating. Don't get complacent in that, but I mean, we... we we, we sure, ethnically, right? We have different languages, different accents, different backgrounds. That, yeah, that's so obvious. But actually, that then helps us to extend to other areas where we realize, you know what? Because you look different than me. You talk different than me. You come from a different place than me or whatever. Like, okay, yeah, and you seem to be a pretty okay person. You know, it opens us up to other areas where, you know what? Maybe that other person who, who likes the Cowboys isn't as bad as I thought they were or something, you know? <laughs> Okay, that might be an exception. I don't know. But, you know, just that, that opens us up, right? It's a beautiful blessing to, to be accommodating. And we do that ethnically, right? We do that economically. We, we, in my experience, rarely judge someone by the way they're dressed. You know, we have people coming in suits and ties, even in August, you know? And we have people who come and, I don't know, whatever they rolled out of bed in, you know? It's fine, right? And everywhere in between. We accommodate those differences. Ethnically, economically, politically, we have people from 
the whole spectrum from one end to the other, I think. You know, we put up with noisy children in worship. Which, what child is not noisy at some point in their life, right? So we put up with children. We don't just put up with children. What are we doing? We're accommodating their phase in life. That's what kids do. It's one of the reasons um, I really have a problem with a way in a manger. Um, digress, Christmas carol. You know, the, the one verse that says, away in a manger. You know, the little Lord Jesus lies sleeping, right? No crying he makes. Like he's in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? There's like animals. There's like a cow or something sitting there. Moo! Like a baby cries. This is what children do. And so we have to understand that. And so we say we want children to love God, right? If we're not loving children by accommodating a little bit of inconvenience in a worship service, we don't love God. Because if we love God, we'd say, I want them to experience the same thing I'm experiencing. I don't want them to wait until they get their act together to be a part of us. I want them to grow up in it and I'm willing to be inconvenienced and deal with a little bit of noise and a little bit of distraction so that these kids grow up worshiping God and experiencing what it is to love Him. You know, compassion. Of course, there, there are limits, right? If, if, a, if a kid is having a temper tantrum, which they all do, they all do. You know, any parent in here ever have a kid that never had a temper tantrum? Did they just go from birth to like, I don't, I don't know, 25? Because I've seen temper tantrums from every age. And so, you know, you got a little kid won't stop crying. Then you take them aside and we're okay with that, right? To discipline or instruct or just comfort whatever's going on, right? That's, there, there are limits. The same thing goes for other areas of life, right? We, we've had people with mental health challenges that lead them to do things that are, you know, not like everyone else. And, and we've demonstrated tremendous accommodation to that. Because we, we want to welcome people because we have compassion for people. And there are limits, right? And so if, if there's something that threatens someone or is harming someone, we need to intervene and enact consequences. You know, and if you have ever felt threatened or harmed in this building, please let us know. We don't want that to be the case. Right? Then the nature, this is the nature of the beast in a way. That as you are accommodating, as you are welcoming of all kinds of people, people are going to bump into each other. Right? The more differences we have in each other, the more opportunities there are for us to hurt one another, offend one another. And so what we need to do is recognize those boundaries as well between loving others. Where there's a line that, that we don't cross that line. You, know, you don't say those kind of things. You, you don't use that kind of language. You don't touch someone in that way. That's 
loving others. It would be unloving to not exercise those kind of things. And in all of that, right, it's rooted in this compassion. If we're loving God, spending time with Him and seeking to live for Him. If we go the other way, it's never going to work, right? But if we're doing that, then we're going to find this compassion growing. We're not perfect, right? But that's the direction. And it's going to move us from the inside out. And that's, that's part of what goes into here. With Jesus loving others, humanizing them, healing them, compassion, and all those kind of things, uh, for not just the ones that He's giving benefits to, but to, to those whom they will encounter. Uh, and, and in fact, what that means is that you, know, you love others not only by showing compassion for them, but with testimony to them. And that's the weird command that Jesus gives if you're reading this. Um, and I'm mindful of the time, so we're going to try to wrap this up. Verse 43, He says, He's healed the guy, right? He's instantly healed. Verse 43, and he sternly warned him. Jesus sternly warned the healed leper and immediately sent him away. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Literally, say, say nothing to nobody. That's the way the Greek language works. It's okay to say that. It's not bad grammar. Say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. short version, this, the sense I have of this is that the testimony to them is that, G, that Jesus is saying, look, go to the priests and to the temple and offer the sacrifices that you should offer as a leper who has been cleansed and healed as your leprosy has gone away. Do the sacrifices that God said you should do in the temple when that happens as a testimony to the people there. That God has worked and healed him. And that, I think, is the key. It's a subtle distinction that rather than just stand around yelling, I'm healed, I'm healed, check me out. Woo, look, I have no spots. Come hug me, I want to hug you, I'm, I'm clean, right? Rather than saying all that, to say a very subtle difference, which is God has come to me and God has healed me. Very subtle difference in focus that you're only going to have if you've already prioritized God and are committed to living for Him, things will come out of you like compassion and like testimony where you will love other people and you will speak out of your love for God. Those two go together, right? They're, they're linked inevitably. And in fact, what Jesus is especially highlighting is that he's now come to put an end to the ceremonial law because when they, this guy goes to the temple and when he offers those sacrifices, they say, well, what happened? He could say, that guy, Jesus, healed me. That guy, Jesus, made me whole. That guy, Jesus, touched me. And it would be an opportunity for more conversation, for more dialogue, and for more evidence that the holy, holy, holy God has made a way for us sinners to be with Him. And especially in His earthly ministry that Jesus wanted to make it clear that He is fulfilling the ceremonial laws so people would ask questions and they would wrestle with the necessary answers and the meaning of who Jesus is. 
But the guy, verse 45, went out, began to proclaim it freely, to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Side note, you know, you minister sometimes, and you love people with compassion, and you testify to them, and sometimes, very often, it makes your life more difficult. You know, Jesus success in ministry is making his ministry more challenging. You know, when you love someone well, it's costly. You you probably won't gain influence with them very much, right? They might now go and do even worse than what they had done before that you tried to help them with. And the only way you're going to handle that in a healthy way is if you've already prioritized God, you're living for God, and you're doing this out of a compassion for God and continue to testify not to your wonderfulness, but to God's power and work in this world. Jesus wants followers, not just any followers. He doesn't want statistics. He wants people to join him in this journey, to come alongside in his kingdom, to join his lifestyle, his kingdom, more than receive the benefits So love God and love others as you join with Jesus Christ who loves God and loves you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that you are faithful. Work this love in us. Work this grace in us that we might love you and prioritize you. Live for you that might flow into compassion and testimony by your grace. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.